applying bleeding edge technology. From the get-go, we don't say machine learning. We don't say anything. We just want to use technology as actually our focus, not machine learning. So we pick the words applying before we used to call ourselves applied machine learning because our focus here is that we don't do machine learning for machine learning's sake. It's really cool that there's like foundational technology companies that are advancing a lot of this. But our focus is on use cases. Our focus is actually applying this to solve some sort of real world problem. So that's why we pick the words applying bleeding edge technology. Second part, improving the health and prosperity. I think those two words are very deliberate choices. Prosperity is not something that you see very, very often. We don't want to make people rich. We don't want to make people whatever. We just want to make sure that we live in a world where nobody has to go bankrupt because they needed to pay for health, that people are actually planning well in advance to essentially be able to take care of themselves and their families. This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting-edge technology, influential global tech players, and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from Asianometry. I'm your guest host today. And I'm here with Anthony and Christina, co-founders of the very interesting healthcare data company, Lydia.ai. Can you introduce us a little bit about what Lydia.ai for our audience and uh, what's kind of your startup journey so far? So we graduated from University of Toronto. We've always been kind of focused on health AI, health machine learning, but um, it hasn't been a very exactly like a straightforward path. We did know that if we wanted to get health AI up and running, someone had to pay for it, right? But um, hospitals were not going to do that, right? Because like you would take three or four years to integrate into a hospital and focus on one part of the prediction and probably need FDA approval for it. So we kind of ended up in insurance in an interesting way because it's not very straightforward health AI insurance. Like how do you make it work? So what we ended up doing was um, working with uh, universal healthcare and basically helping consumers better understand their health status, health risk. Uh, and there's a lot of things that you could do ahead of time if you have like three to five years time horizon to plan ahead based on your own personal health risk. And those are out-of-pocket expenses that you can expect to to see when you get sick or when your family gets sick. And um, that becomes a very powerful kind of tool for insurance companies to try to help, well, agents to try to help their clients. And then the added benefit in there is, I think, the streamlining of basically the approval process for insurance, which is completely based on what we call the health score. It's kind of like a credit score. You don't need to share personal data, like credit card data for a credit score. You don't need to share health data for a health score. So that's kind of like what we end up doing. You talked a little bit just now about the healthcare score. Is it like a number? Is it like a conglomeration of numbers? Like, what does that look like? So we have several scores. Um, we have mental health scores. We have activity scores. We have medical records status scores. What we have been finding more is that the industry is more accepting of medical data as opposed to activity data or sleep data. And that makes a lot of sense because traditionally, uh, insurance companies ask you to do medical exams for a reason. And they ask you to do like a blood test, like a urine test. And so if you want them to suddenly overnight say, hey, look at my smartwatch data and, you know, I hope that's enough for you. So we ended up doing, I think, more on the medical side. And that actually is a very powerful kind of um, initiative because globally, everybody's kind of on the same page as that. Like that is kind of like the de facto standard for approvals in general. This is specifically healthcare insurance companies, right? Uh, healthcare uh, live, yeah. 
So if you look here, the journey that we've been on is really starting out as a machine learning company. What I've been telling people now is, hey, we've been doing machine learning before it was sexy. So back in the day, the names Jeffrey Hinton or embeddings or deep learnings used to elicit the same amount of excitement as does ChatGPT does. So when you look at that, when you start out of school, we actually started with a piece of technology. Wrong way for startups. You have to start with the problem, not the technology. And as we got deeper into health AI, that's when we realized that, hey, if we have a piece of technology that can parse through all of this data and actually allow people to understand what their expected health risks is going to be three to five years down the line into the future, how will that actually impact our decisions today? And that's when we realized that, hey, the industry that would most benefit from this, yes, we can go down, like Anthony mentioned, hospitals, we can go down all of this. But where is the highest amount of impact we can drive in the shortest amount of time? That's how we actually settled into the health insurance space. Because if we can actually help people know what their health risk is going to look like, we can encourage much earlier planning from a financial sense to get that up and running. And you know what? Nobody wants to get a medical exam to get health insurance, especially the younger generation. If we can use digital data to ameliorate that uh, sales journey, it's going to make everybody's life easier. So that's actually how we landed in health insurance through this very long-winded way that sounds short when I summarize it for you in 45 seconds, one minute. But realistically, the gap between a functional piece of technology to a functional piece of technology that has a use case where it can make an impact to actually deploying that and all of the post-production stuff where you can actually get it to drive real-life impact, the distance is marked in years not in days, something that, you know, young founders do not know like ourselves. What were some of the other kind of like dead ends that you kind of investigated? So sure. many. Yeah, for sure. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I'll name two and you name two. How's that? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> okay, so the some of the things we've done, we knew that AI healthcare could unlock lots of healthcare data that were previously unused. So back then, you know, embeddings is the ability to capture everything you know about a person into one single dot in this like multi-dimensional space is what embeddings were. So we were like, if we can embed the person's medical record into this, we'd be able to find people just like them. One use case of health AI is actually the ability to go into clinical trials and find patients just like this, comparisons and whatnot. So that's one thing we investigate. We didn't spend a lot of effort there. But when you start from tech going into impact and use case, you do do a lot of these explorations. That's one of them. I'll go even earlier. One thing that is very common is something called named entity recognition or named entity extraction, NER. And it's an NLP task that is certainly used to standardize unstructured text data, basically non-machine read data like doctor's notes. And uh, we started with like different languages, uh, like Chinese, Japanese, and um, trying to kind of pin an arbitrary word in maybe malignant cancer or neoplasm to an ID, a concept ID, is actually not a very trivial task. It's actually quite difficult. And um, we had a solution at the time, and we still use the same solution today. It's a very core part of our technology. But there are people who sell that kind of data cleansing service or kind of build this kind of recommendation that this is the disease code that this person has based on the notes that you typed in. So like there are kind of these kind of usages that we also kind of explored on the way, but we found just like the patient finding kind of a use case that it wasn't profound enough. It wasn't a problem we really wanted to solve, to be honest. 
was it like not a big enough problem or like were these kind of just like really strange problems or the customers were like, eh, we're not that interested? One thing that really resonated with me super early in our journey when we were doing these product market fit testings, doing a lot of these, was someone telling me, the problem is probably worth solving, but somebody needs to pay for it. And if somebody who pays for it, this is the department of a department of a department problem, then chances are you're not going to actually get paid fast enough to satisfy your investors. That's what happens when you become venture funded. So that was actually something that advice I received super early on that actually really resonated with me. Or like, it's a department of department budget. Either the problem isn't big enough or the solution you have for the problem at hand is way too advanced. So people aren't quite ready for it yet because especially in B2B, the existing way of doing things isn't broken enough yet to a certain extent or it doesn't have the promise of driving exponential growth enough that the people who are responsible for the problem is willing to take the risk of fixing it. So then once you actually came on to this idea of like insurance and all that, how did you go about that process of turning technology, commercializing it into a product? I think it's one thing to like, you know, sit behind a computer and imagine all these wonderful UI and, you know, wonderful technology and underlying AI and whatnot. But it's another thing to actually speak with potential user of health and when you start doing that, then you realize that, oh, the assumptions that you had in mind are probably all wrong. And um, the way that people are going to use that technology is actually quite different. And you can only do that through clients. You can only do that through paying customers because um, they're willing to pay you to solve the problem. So that's why you get the final response or at least like a good iteration of how to solve a particular problem. How do you avoid ending up becoming like a totally customized solution for like one client at a time? Wow, that's an interesting question. I think we've always known that we wanted to be a platform. Like the mission was always there. We just on the way of getting there, like to get health AI to as many people to use health AI to protect the next billion. It was always there. But like the level of clarity when it comes to product development, it didn't really kind of reach its clarity until we actually started seeing people use it and, you know, starting seeing how they use it. Then when you saw that, then you knew, oh, this could be platformized. Uh, this this could be kind of like structured in a way where it does not require like uh, redevelopment every time or anything like that. So that's kind of like an, a more organic path towards product development. When you think about it, the way that I like to explain to our team is find really like the very thin 20% that's going to make the 80% of the difference to a client. And that requires a really deep understanding of the problem you're solving at hand. If you can fully understand what of the problem you're doing, then you can understand the sliver of the problem that if you make it go away, maybe it's not even 20%, it could be the 1%. But that's really going to drive the client forward. That allows a product to be repeated because the reality is, is that they probably all have similar problems that reflect itself in different ways because organizationally structured is very, very different. And, you know, our CTO is a mathematician by training. So he focuses a lot of his effort on actually diagnosing what that problem at hand is. And I think that spirit has allowed us to essentially have a product and not custom build. Because if you understand the problem set well enough, then what determines how many different solutions that you have is actually your resources. Because if you look at a very full-blown B2B kind of enterprise platform, the reality is, is that there's going to be multiple solutions that 
drive towards, let's say, a really big problem like CRM. But how did they start? They started by looking at one sliver and building for that one sliver and not getting being distracted by all the noise of the different ways this problem shows up in different companies. So I think focus on the problem is a really core part of what allowed us to not become custom built. In custom build, you listen to different companies, they have different opinions, but how much of that is the actual problem versus the structure of the company that causes different political tensions or different workflow tensions where, you know, sub-problem, tangent problems actually arise as a result of that. How many times do you have to say no to the customer? Like customer has something they really want or they think they want it. And then um, like, I want this custom thing. And then you have to say no to them. And then they're like, fortunately, we're running a business that has institutional investors who are looking for real returns. Or maybe fortunately, that is the case because that gives you a very specific timeline, a very specific life cycle for a company for going out, achieving milestones and fundraising and whatnot. And that forces us to be laser focused on basically revenue generation and, you know, proof of uh, concept and proof of uh, business model. Was there ever a time where you felt like the solution wasn't working and everything? No, plenty of times. Like, I think the examples that we raised were like times when we felt like, okay, this is like not working. This is like not the direction I think, you know, going down is the right way. And um, I mean, the concept of even the health score, which is very new, because like we basically are the only people who are talking about it now. And obviously there are more people now talking about it. So it's great to create a category, our own. But, uh, you know, reaching that stage where you can say, oh, here's a health score. Wow. It's like that came from, you know, another client that paid us for like a, more like a professional services to solve a particular problem and kind of organically just develop into, oh, if we wanted to solve that problem for real, like then the health score has to be a reality. And then we looked at like, oh, what a credit score would look like or, you know, what other risk scores would look like. And in the end, you know, I think the health score was the right way. But we could have meandered during that, that process into different types of disillusionment. And I think we can speak from experience. We did have a lot of that early on. We had so much of that. You know, we call ourselves as one of our culture tenants. We call ourselves the underdogs because we iterate and just keep going. That really just goes to show you how many times things did not go as we had planned. And really coming from a very machine learning focused company, another value we hold is use a scientific method. And what does that mean? Scientific method doesn't mean you're going to prove things, you're going to get everything right. It just means that you're probably going to find a lot of ways that things don't work. By nature of machine learning, that's what it means. It, It means sometimes you're You try some things with your models and it works, or sometimes it says really stupid things and you really don't know which one you're going to get. But what you do know is that you have a system of actually figuring out what good looks like. You mentioned earlier that your goal is to kind of improve the health and prosperity of kind of like the next billion people. That's a big, meaty problem. Can you kind of break it down for us of what that looks like and what that means? I can try first and then maybe Christine can follow after. To protect the next billion I think we really have to kind of look at Asia as a whole. And as a whole, you're talking about like over a trillion dollars in US dollars in out-of-pocket expenses. And what that means for an individual, a family, let's say in China, in Indonesia, is not being able to pay for cancer treatment for your grandpa, for your wife, for your kids. And that's a very serious problem. And so when we say the next billion, it's not like, oh, the next generation. 
it's the next billion people who actually have are going to meet this kind of problem. I mean, when you take a look at like mortality rates and cancer rates, cancer rates is almost like it's inevitable someone's going to have cancer. And so how do we get people prepared ahead of time for that? And how do we make them realize that, you know, there are solutions to it ahead of time? I think that's where health AI from a predictive perspective is meant to do for healthcare at the consumer level, I think. I'm going to break this down and give a small formula to all of the other founders wondering what a mission statement is. Because it actually took us a couple years to get here. Because when we first started, we were like, if we can't even feed ourselves, what good is a mission? If I were to do it again, do it a little bit differently. But anyways, here's the formula. What are you using? What is it that you want to use to achieve what goal and for who? That's it, just three parts. And actually, the full phrasing of our mission statement is to apply bleeding edge technology to improve the health and prosperity of the next billion people. We actually selected each of these words extremely deliberately. So I'll just break this down very quickly. Applying bleeding edge technology. From the get-go, we don't say machine learning. We don't say anything. We just want to use technology as actually our focus, not machine learning. So we pick the words applying. Before, we used to call ourselves applied machine learning because our focus here is that we don't do machine learning for machine learning's sake. It's really cool that there's like foundational technology companies that are advancing a lot of this. But our focus is on use cases. Our focus is actually applying this to solve some sort of real world problem. So that's why we picked the words applying bleeding edge technology. Second part, improving the health and prosperity. I think those two words are very deliberate choices. Prosperity is not something that you see very, very often. We don't want to make people rich. We don't want to make people whatever. We just want to make sure that we live in the world where nobody has to go bankrupt because they needed to pay for health, that people are actually planning well in advance to essentially be able to take care of themselves and their families. That's what prosperity looks like to us. It's a very Asian term when you really think about it. And healthcare is because, well, everybody wants to be yeah, healthy. Yeah, I think the word we had in mind when we said prosperity was xingfu. Yeah, like health and prosperity. Like that's the foundation of what prosperity looks like. I mean... There's a saying that goes, healthy people want a hundred things, but unhealthy people just want one thing. They just want to be healthy. So that was the next selection words. And finally, the next billion people. We don't say the a billion people. There is a next in there. And what does that mean? It means the rising middle class, essentially. The rising everybody who's actually coming up from all of this. They're going to need things. They're going to need healthcare. They need to, they're going to need all sorts of things. But the reality is, is that the existing solutions were not designed for them. They were either designed for a North America, European audience and just trying to retrofit in Asia, or they were homegrown and they're whatnot. There's so many problems that this group of people actually have that are so worth solving. And we hope to be a part of the solution. There's going to be other players. And for me personally, I think this mission statement is not a company mission statement. It's my life's mission. I think Lydia AI is going to be a chapter in it, but there's definitely going to be other solutions that come together to really make that happen. But, you know, we have working lives of 50 years, 60 maybe with higher life expectancy. But at the, at the end of 60 years, we were able to touch all these lives in one way or the other. I'd be happy. You mentioned briefly the idea of concept of like North American healthcare systems. I was born in the States and I was raised in the States. So I have a sense of that. You don't have to like go all out, but like what are some of the kind of the issues you feel that you would find if you were trying to shoehorn North American systems like the United States or Canada's into Asia? 
I'm going to pick a really easy one. In the data that we've picked, there's a lot of traditional Chinese medicine or, or even herbal remedies that actually quite commonly used. In my own case, uh, my grandparents are in Beijing. Like actually TCM post-cancer treatment and actually recovery is a huge part of the medical practice there. There are hospitals dedicated to this. My grandma went to one after radiation therapy. Like this type of healthcare, it just appears so radically differently the way people think about healthcare, like it's it's a complete different beast. I would say that the U.S. is actually in one of the worst shape for insurance ever. If you don't have group insurance, you can easily go bankrupt because the cost of healthcare in the U.S. is just exorbitant from the amount of privatization that goes on there. And there's just really crazy examples like you probably have heard before. Medical bankruptcy is one yeah. of the leading causes of bankruptcy. Yeah. Probably around the world, but in U.S. In the U.S., it's like very, yeah. very big. And it's a very difficult problem to solve, specifically also in the U.S. because it's so complicated. And so there's Medicaid, there's like Obamacare. There's like, it can get really esoteric very, very quickly. In Asia, I think it's a little different in the sense like you begin with universal healthcare. It's a given that you have universal healthcare here. But how far will that go? Because... The reality is that a lot of people think, oh, you know, I have Jim Bao, like I have like, you know, NHI, universal healthcare, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Until they realize they're not going to be because it only covers 55 to 60% of costs like for cancer and does not cover for advanced cancer treatment and other kinds of services that are inevitably needed. Does not cover for salary loss because you're, you have to take care of your own parent or, or someone else. Um, nobody really thinks about it like that. So um, it's like both Asia and North America, they have different kinds of problems. But for me, at least, when I look at the Asian problem for universal healthcare, I think it's a, a lot easier to solve compared to the U.S. So one of the things I was thinking about when I first read Ladea.ai, how do you kind of guys avoid the sort of like, ooh, factor when you bring up the concept of kind of like a medical score? Because there would be a subset of people who aren't fans of credit scores either. So one part is we put the customers in the middle in terms of privacy and control over their data. And what that looks like is the first thing they have to, customers have to get comfortable around is, okay, well, is this for me or do you want to do something else around this? What are the privacy and data security controls around this? Am I truly in control of what I'm doing here? So we really emphasize that point. So when the customer gets the health score. It is their thing. They don't even need to show anybody. They don't need to show their agent. They don't need to show any insurance. They don't have to do anything. It can be purely for their reference to understand how they should think about their health and they're also their family's health. So we give them the assurance that their privacy is, first of all, guaranteed via lots of technology measures and whatnot. That's like a bare basic minimum at this point. But the next step of creating trust is actually giving the customer a guarantee of control over what happens to their data and what they're getting out of it. So those are the two of what we do for consumers. And the third part that we focused on as a company is the value we're giving in exchange for data relevant and does the customer actually want it? Because if they want something, they will consent their data. All of us here probably have Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. Let's not even go into the sheer amount of data we give them for the benefit of being able to interact and all of that that we get in return. So when we can actually put customers at the center, use all sorts of technology security protocols to ensure their privacy, 
They control what happens to their data, and we're giving them equivalent value back. At that point, it is not a oh, I'm stealing data from you and doing something. But it's a very collaborative approach to actually how do we use this data to make your life better? Conversation. And then for my part, I would say you know having grown up in you know with a North American education as well, we tend to be taught that oh you know if you want to build your credit score, you need to get a student credit card. You got to pay your bills on time. Blah blah blah.、And、these are good you know financial hygiene to have in general, but. You kind of don't see the same for health, and then when you get sick, let's say I actually have hypertension stage one, and I can't get insurance. I can't get critical illness insurance or major disease insurance. But I, I'm fit. Like I work out, I surf, I do you know quite a bit of physical activities.、It、doesn't really make sense for me to not have it. But if there is something that is more kind of can reflect my status better, yeah, I think that's going to be more fair. Another example is like there's eight million people in Taiwan. Who do not have credit history? So what do they do? Like, if they have、uh, credit issues, if they need to, you know, pay、uh, their bill, if they can't meet, you know, rent next month, what are they going to do, right? So it's particular uses,、um, especially the health score for folks like me, like folks who have、uh, pre-existing conditions. It's good education, right? Like for someone who, like, I've done a health check before in Taiwan, and they give you like this pile of paper. Having a health score, I guess, could also help with that. Like, just understand better. I think it's like different levels. So when you see, like, you go through all those medical exams and you get the paper and you start to understand your health a little bit better. You know, it kind of explains things. You have like、uh, the first level of kind of understanding of your health, and then afterwards you talk to your doctor, right? And that's another level of understanding. And he's not going to like explain every page to you, but he's going to tell you based on his experience what he believes your case is going to be. Now, where does the health score sit in all this? It's just right like before all of this happens, you can know risk ahead of time, and that can help you decide even what kind of checkups you want to focus on, and then afterwards, you know what kind of conversation you're going to have. There's different levels of evidence, or different levels of kind of knowledge that you want to have、uh, about your own health status. I just want to dig in, double click on the concept of even the word risk. I think a lot of the times we misunderstand what that even means. All of us are at risk. It, our parents have higher risk of cancer than we do, simply because of age. If you are male, you have higher risk for a lot of things, including dying, than me, who is female. So when you think about risk, all that is, it's a comparative value, and we're trying to say, look, if you don't use a health score, you probably know based on your age and gender alone what your risks are going to be. But if we actually get a little bit more data input into that, we're able to actually tell you how you compare with people in your age and gender group. If you are a 30 to 40 year old male, is your risk a bit higher than that? A bit lower than that? If you're higher than that, you should probably get your stuff in check. But if you're lower than that, then keep doing whatever you're doing. So that's what it means to be at risk. It doesn't mean good or bad. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means how do you compare to somebody in your age and gender group, and that's insights that you previously not get with only age, gender, and maybe BMI. How do you make sure that there's enough data points to make an accurate prediction? Because like for a lot of people, I would say maybe it's easier to get like their height or their weight or something. But then that's like stuff that's not so apparent is like lifestyle, exercise, right? How do you sort of reconcile that into like the data? You don't have to talk about specifics, but just like broad strokes. 
broad strokes depends on the use case itself. If the use case is just to tell you to exercise more, I probably need very few points. If the use case is something a little bit more like a credit scoring, like I'm actually going to give you products based on that, then I probably need a little bit more data points. If it's just to have a conversation to give you personalized recommendations, then broad strokes good enough is probably good enough. So I think when we think about how much data is needed to come up with that score, I would challenge us to think about the use case and defining what a good enough or an accurate enough score looks like for that specific use case. You mentioned a little bit about not being able to get a specific type of insurance, right? How does this Lydia AI's tool sort of help with equity in terms of making sure that everyone gets a proper amount of insurance or coverage? The average underwriter has to see more than a hundred applications in a single day. Sometimes they spend only seven minutes on one application. The health score encapsulates three years of medical data. So we're not saying like, oh, underwriters are wrong or or anything like that. We're saying that underwriters can use this as a reference to make decisions and. The reference point is objective because it's data driven, and so that's I think an interesting way to figure out. Okay, maybe I have hypertension, but actually my risk compared to other people with hypertension, I'm actually quite okay. I'm actually quite uh, normal, and I don't need like、uh, someone who spends seven minutes asking me to do a you know blood exam or like go to the hospital or clinic just so I can get this product. If I could get this product now. That can protect me. Then that's great. And I think that's kind of like what we're trying to move towards. So you're saying that, like, prior to, like, without this, your average underwriter basically is making a decision in like less than ten minutes, right? Well, so there's quite a bit of stuff in underwriting. So there's like,、uh, in total, for a single application, it could go up to thirty minutes. But it, it's split into different sessions. Let's say I spend seven minutes now, and I say, okay, you have hypertension. Go get a medical exam, and then I go on to my next case. That didn't take me more than three minutes, right? But once the results come in, I have to scan it. Then I have to check my rule book. I have to do it like then. Then that take kind of takes a lot more time. So the whole concept is like, hey, how do I use this score and basically see that you know, you're quite okay? And also, we're not in the business of rejecting people. That's not what we do, and we don't want to get into that business. Our focus is trying to increase the insurable base to basically expand the amount of coverage and that's possible for all markets in general. And that's good for the insurance companies as well because they can have、so. a better understanding. Yeah, and, yeah.、Right. I think it's like a win for everybody because it's a win for someone like me.、Um, it's a win for the agent because he can satisfy me as a customer, and then it's a win for the insurance company as well because they can be sure that. I'm very proactive about my health, and I don't need to do additional stuff just to prove that I'm worthy of this financial product. Random question just popped in my mind: Like, why don't you think this concept has not been done before? It has been done to some extent in the U.S., but because the U.S. is so data siloed, because like everybody goes to different kind of clinics. I go to、uh, Mayo Clinic. You go to Intermountain.、Uh, someone goes to like Columbia Presbyterian, you know, hospital. It's very hard to get, you know, what we call a hit rate. So the idea has been kind of been there before in the past, but it hasn't become a reality until universal healthcare systems really kind of became really more substantial, robust, especially post COVID, where a lot of things had to be, you know, be digital because of telemedicine, the need for telemedicine,、mm-hmm. chronic disease management, and and such. And so I think that's kind of like、uh, how I would think about the problem. Talk to me a bit about your experience working with Taiwan Healthcare. 
you've been here for a couple of while, and like it's always been a fascinating topic for me. I think Taiwan healthcare is, from a data perspective, just like from a purely engineering perspective, I think it's like one of the most amazing, complete research kind of data sets that. Are okay. Rest of Asia actually look to Taiwan to inform their e-health strategies yeah. and infrastructures and whatnot. In fact, I think Taiwan has won awards for you know from major conferences for what they did with uh, My Health Bank, which is allowing citizens to own their own personal health records. And so almost every country is doing that because they want to promote telehealth, right? They want to promote the ability of an individual to go to a hospital. And have that doctor see, okay, it's a consolidated like medical history, so they won't be asking you to do the same exam again. They know what kind of prescription you're on, and that can make them more easy to kind of judge how to go about treating you. I think healthcare in Taiwan is just from a completeness perspective, that's that's the case. But when we really think about healthcare use here, I would say it's overuse because it's like uh, you know every small problem you just go to like Tai Da for it, right? And go to Jesus for it. I, I've heard like people go to like, just and D, you know, to get like you know IV, you know drip, just you know make you feel better because you have a you know a fever or whatnot. The people have become so attuned to the you know the facility of it, the easiness of access to it, that it becomes very difficult to make it sustainable. That's why you hear news you know every year about like oh it's so difficult to make it through the budget this year for every hospital to kind of. Uh, continue their operations, and for taxpayers to continue to you know pay their you know money for uh, national healthcare. But because of the overuse, I think um, what you see in the end is that there's quite a bit of stuff that you could do to help the individual consumer with understanding their own health profile. Because it's so overused, because you have so much data about yourself, and that you don't even know that your patterns resemble someone else like you in the twenty you know five million people in this country. And because you resemble that person, you may have you know similar kind of risk, and that's how I would think about it. What does the future hold for Lydia in Taiwan and the rest of Asia? Well, I think Taiwan—it's an interesting setup for us because our machine learning teams are based in Toronto, but we chose to go to market first in Taiwan. And I think this is a very strategic, but also interesting choice, and answers your earlier question about oh, why hasn't anyone done it before? And that question is why an investor asks you, "Why now? Why you? Why now?" I don't want to fund no friendster. I want to fund mm-hmm. Facebook. What makes you believe you are not the cannon fodder, the pao hui before the rest of this takes off? And Taiwan's was a really great choice for us on that front because of all the excellence in data, the excellence in the healthcare system here, and also because it's actually Asia's third largest insurance market. People don't know this. And a lot of the insurance bureaus in the rest of Asia actually look at Taiwan and what they're doing and some of the regulations around this and the systems being set up. These are very little known facts about this and how we actually explain it to our investors. So what's next for us? We've proven that there is the possibility of using alternative data sources to do lots of cool things on healthcare prediction. Now, how do we replicate this model into different countries? And what differences and similarities are there in these different countries, so we can get it into the hands of more people? But the next billion is in the mission for a reason, and it means getting out of Taiwan and bring that technology out and see how 
it will kind of permutate. And like I said before, every country has something similar. And they look to Taiwan as a role model for a lot of stuff that e-health initiatives, you know, they've done here. Then you look at a country like Indonesia, 250 million people, people living on less than a dollar a day. How do you fix that problem? How do you? And then, you know, they're living on islands. They don't even keep their money in the bank because they keep it under the mattress. My grandma still does that. Don't rob <laughs> <Yeah>. her. <laughs> yeah. So how do you, like, how do you solve for a country like that? It's easier when the countries like Taiwan, like Japan or, or like Korea, you know, more developed and more sophisticated. It gets harder and harder when you look into like Southeast Asia. But I think that's where I think the additional challenges that we're going to see uh, lies. And it's going to require a lot of creativity. It's going to re- require a lot of, I think, understanding of that health market itself. And for me, that's a fascinating journey in itself. Anthony, Christina, thank you so much for your time here. Anything you want to plug? Please check out Lady AI. If you can read Chinese, if you're Taiwanese, uh, please go try it out. Uh, it's in the App Store. It's called uh, AI Jianconfen. And yes, we uh, have the next iteration of the app coming out. It's called Well Aged and um, has a whole lot more improvements and scores like mental health scores that I mentioned before. And it's all based on experience from the first iteration. And we're pretty excited to kind of push that out. <laughs>